Every minute of every day in America, there are emergencies. Multiple times a day, people have to get to safety in a hurry, and locked doors could mean a death sentence to them. Every state in the country, and most every city and county, have laws requiring emergency exit devices on doors meant for people to get out and away from harm. In 1911, however, there were few laws, if any, requiring this type of hardware. 146 people died in the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire, most because they couldn't get out. Just months prior to that disaster, the owners had been strongly advised to install exit devices on the doors to the production floors, but they never did. That disaster and the Von Duprin exit device paved the way to what is now so common in North America, most people don't even know what it's called. I'm Jeff Moss. I'm Tyler J. Thomas. And I'm Tim Coleman. Together, we will explore and discuss these events from the perspective of over 30 years of combined locksmith and door hardware experience. This is the Three Tumblers. Now, the Von Duprin Game Changer, Part 2, Flight to Safety. In 1908, Carl Prinzler and Henry DuPont received patents for emergency exit locks under the name of their patent attorney, Arthur Hood. With the patents secured, the Vonnegut Hardware Company was able to market their exit devices to various customers. The first customer to have an emergency exit device installed was a high school in Indianapolis, and soon after, every school in the city had these devices. In 1909, the Murat Shriners Temple, later known as the Murat Theater, was opened at 502 North New Jersey Street in Indianapolis. Designed by Oscar Bolin, he included the Vonnegut Hardware emergency exit device in the designs of the building. Oscar's intent was not only to make the building safer for the occupants, but also to help advertise the Von Duprin device for use. When the Indiana State Factory Inspector toured the building in March of 1910, he stated that the theater exceeded all of the safety requirements of the time. Following closely, many other buildings in Indianapolis began installing the Von Duprin exit devices, including Benjamin Harrison School No. 2. Every door in the building was equipped with a Von Duprin exit device. In 1911, that school caught fire. However, all students were able to escape the building in less than a minute. Also in 1911, the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire claimed over 170 lives, many of which could have been spared if only the doors had exit devices installed on them. I wonder if proximity mattered because here we've got two examples, first the schools and then the Murat Temple uh, as far as 
areas or buildings getting this, but that's far, Indianapolis is far from New York City. I mean, it's drivable and I don't know, 90 minute flight, maybe something like that. But I wonder if the time it took for the traveling salesman to get there or get them installed or, or spread, because obviously they've got a hot ticket, hot item out of the gate. You're going to hit the stuff that's nearby, Indianapolis, Gary, Indiana, Cleveland, Cincinnati, Lexington, all kinds of stuff like that. Uh, maybe New York City is one of the last places you go, or it's um, certainly not high on your pecking order. So I wonder, too, if that had something to play with it. Um, maybe the owners of Triangle Shirtwaist, if they saw nearby other buildings, other facilities with it, yeah, it's an added cost. Yeah, they're trying to cut down on added costs because they've made substantial investments into their machinery, all of that. But, you know, maybe that could have swayed them a little bit more. Or maybe that could have been the deciding factor. You know, everybody everybody wants a new car once they see their neighbor get a new car. That kind of thing. I rewatched that video, the safe exit uh, from Von Duprin from the 40s. You know, I think it's really important. I don't remember having fire drills every month. I remember having them, you know, throughout the year, more more than one. But they should have had that 30 years prior. And, you know, training with anything, I met up with some of the people that I took karate with. You know, they're training kids, self-defense and bullying, things like that. If you know how to react, you're going to be better prepared. If you don't know what the heck's going on, like... There's a reason they're called panic bars because people panic and they don't know how to get out. A half hour of training every few months could have saved a lot of people back then. Also, I wanted to note that uh, using the exit device in the Shriners Temple, uh, which later became a theater, using that not only for safety, but also as a uh, sales advertisement. That's, That's pretty cool. You know, the, the architect, the designer of the building, he put those devices on there. He knew about them. And so he installed, he designed the building with that hardware in mind for use. And it came out that the building was safer than pretty much any other building in existence at that time. Something else that I would like to make note of is our little teases that we had at the end of different series leading up to this story uh, we had a little tiny line about Hood uh, having a patent on the exit device and through our research we found that Hood was actually the patent attorney for Carl Prinzler and Henry DuPont uh, kind of threw us for a little bit of a loop and if you go searching through patents uh, it's kind of hard to find some during that time period that have Prinzler's name on them. Uh, so if you are into patent research, you should look for Arthur Hood. In the years after the Iroquois theater fire, family members described Carl Prinzler as having a very strong survivor's guilt after he narrowly escaped death. It was this that drove him to market the exit device not to make money, but to save lives. The Lakeview School Fire further emboldened him to make this hardware readily available throughout the country. Carl said, quote, By that time, we felt something must be done, and it was a case of fight. After the shirtwaist factory fire and the revelation that the owners were told just months before 
that they needed self-releasing exit devices installed on the doors. Prinzler said, The very thought makes one shudder. When buildings housing any number of people are not equipped, the entire responsibility rests upon the officers who know of such devices and do not use them. It was these theories that paved the way for modern building codes. After the Triangle Fire, building and occupancy codes were changed to require exit devices for public assembly spaces, as well as any space that housed a large number of occupants when compared to the physical location they were in. Furthermore, in order to have a properly functioning exit device, the doors must swing outwards. Multiple times before, inward swinging doors had trapped people in fires. Now, to have safe exit devices installed correctly, the doors had to swing outwards. With the changes in building codes, the Von Duprin device was becoming required hardware in many places. Yeah, I mean, it, it became part of the law, like you said, not just something that was a good idea. And I think if it was required in the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory, we probably wouldn't be talking about that one. A salesman coming around suggesting that you do something doesn't have any teeth to it, but the fire inspector demanding that you do it does. And, and nowadays, you know, they obviously pay a lot more attention. They don't let things slip. You know, they, they check up on it very quickly. I was at a restaurant, you know, the fire inspector just happened to walk in there one day, you know, saw that they were due for an inspection. They had it like two days later. Everything was fine, but, you know, you got to do those things. You know, and he, you know, there were, you know, I, he, I was talking to him a little bit about Knox boxes and things, but like, you know, they didn't have a chain on their outs on their sprinkler. You know, he said, somebody can mess with that, shut that water off. And then when you need the, when you need it, you know, so go to the store, buy a chain and a padlock, they have a heck of a lot of headaches in the future, you know, and they can write that up and that has some merit to it. It's not just, you know. You know, the, the traveling salesman coming in from the big to the big city trying to sell me his latest invention. And that could have been why those guys didn't put the correct stuff on there because they're like, well, we don't have to do that. Who are you? How many times in history, like within the last 120 years, have we seen codes and laws change to reflect hardware? All the time now we see hardware change to reflect the codes, but not necessarily in the other direction. So these laws and these codes were implemented as a direct result of this hardware being developed. And I think that's that's really cool. I've had that happen before. I've I had a solution we did for a uh, a hospital, an external man cage of sorts that blocks the stairwell going towards the basement, and the. Uh, Georgia Fire Marshal loved my solution so much that he was taking pictures and notes and getting all sorts of information for me and they were, you know, he was like this is going to be an acceptable alternative going forward we're going to get this in writing because I, I, I love this solution so I've had that happen before they, they do, obviously what I did then was not a it wasn't a device that I used it was just a combination of devices I used which ironically enough was an exit device but yeah, there there are fire marshals, AHJs, stuff like that that will see something that they didn't ever consider before, and they're like, "Hell yeah, let's use this." In 
furthermore, Carl Prinzler wanting to do this, he wasn't doing this to make money. He was doing this to save lives. And I think that's just something that is so admirable about the man and that he wasn't worried about how much money he was going to make off of it. I mean, these days we all know the price of a Von Duper 99 series, you know, rim exit device uh, is pretty expensive and it's kind of hard to sell our customers on when there are alternatives. But back in the day, there were no alternatives, but that was the hardware to have, as we're going to hear more about. Now that safe exit devices were becoming required in so many different places, Vonnegut created sales and marketing teams not only in the United States, but around the world. Between 1914 and 1918, the Von Duper name sounded close to names related to the German Empire during World War I. To counter the decrease of sales during this time, Von Duprin devices were marketed under the name Prince for a short while in order to avoid confusion over the origin of the product. After the Great War, however, business started booming for Von Duprin. Their marketing strategy was that people died in fires all the time just because they couldn't get out. Staying with their marketing campaign, the Vonnegut company focused on the fact that panic is the biggest killer in commercial fires. They felt that training to overcome panic should start in schools and that people should be able to move quickly and safely and be outside on an unobstructed sidewalk in less than a few minutes. While fire extinguishers, sprinkler systems, and alarm boxes were all starting to become commonplace in commercial building settings, the ability to exit the structure safely was the main focus. The flight to safety could be made by all, no matter the circumstances. So fire alarms back in the day were pretty much local only. Um, the box or the pole station in the building would be a large geared wheel that would be set for like a certain code. So if you pulled the station on the first floor, it, it could have, you know, like go off three times, then stop, then one time, then stop, then two times. And when that code went out, they would know where it came from. Uh, they had a, it was basically like a telegraph system. Um, it was very similar to the, the boxes that used to be on the side of the street. You know, they would know that it was at the corner of Fifth and Pine. Somebody pulled the box. Wouldn't know what happened or specifically where, but somewhere in that area. And it would come out on like a ticker tape in the fire department. And they would, you know, go wherever those numbers corresponded to. It's not like now where, you know, you have addressable fire alarm systems and it'll tell you exactly where in the building, um, obviously, however it's programmed but it'll tell you exactly what went off. It allows for a more accurate response. You're not walking in the building, knocking something down, and the fire is a thousand feet on the other side of the building. You know, there was no monitoring back then. It was just a loud alarm in, in many cases on the outside. And you'll still see in some buildings, you know, if this, there's a, you'll see a sign that if this alarm bell rings, call the fire department because there was no central stations. Fire departments may have monitored them directly, but there was no... ADT started as a telegraph company. They weren't doing alarms initially. And, you know, responses were a lot different. They would send somebody out. The 
an armed guard to investigate and then the fire department, so things took a lot longer. Jeff, just uh, out of curiosity, those old pull stations, you said they operate like a uh, telegraph, basically an automated telegraph. Uh, did they use technology that's similar to the old pulse styling for telephones? Yeah, probably. I mean, I, I don't have any coded pulse stations, so I've never, you know, I've watched some videos and stuff on, on how they work. But yeah, that that could be similar. It would be, you know, whatever the electrical pulse, whatever it was set to right. transmit a, a code was you couldn't select it obviously it's not like on a rotary dial where you're telling it what to dial whatever the box is set to transmit when you pull it they're all they're, they're preset to whatever the number is for that box or that room or- it would almost be just trying to translate this for some of our listeners who may be not familiar with pulse dialing on telephones or anything this could be like a pre-wound music box almost. Yes. You pull it and then it goes through and it electrically sends the signals based on uh, the little tabs or dots within the mechanism, yes. which is pretty cool. So the fire extinguishers of the time uh, were a lot different than what they are now. I mean, they still put the, uh, to use firefighter terminology, they put the wet stuff on the red stuff. And... So back then, though, you know, today we pull the pin, squeeze the lever and dry chemical or or depending on the type of extinguisher, uh, the extinguishing agent comes out and it's pressurized uh, that you can direct onto the base of the flames. These extinguishers from back in the early 1900s, late 1800s operated similarly, uh, but you had to actually take the extinguisher, turn it upside down. And these extinguishers were made out of uh, copper or brass, sometimes bronze uh, materials. And you turned it upside down, bumped it. It had like a little rim uh, around the top of it. You bumped that and it actually broke a vial of some sort of acid, uh, some sort of soda acid uh, mixture. And is basically like when you mix vinegar and baking soda, uh, you mix the two and, you know, you get the, the big reaction and everything. We've all done that in school. Well, you have a similar reaction inside of this extinguisher, which contains either just water for class A fires, which are ordinary combustibles. Um, you have some sort of foam for class B, which is flammable liquids. And then later on with the advent of electricity being widespread there were chemical compounds that uh, were not conductive to electricity so they could be used on electrical fires Uh, the first extinguisher was patented in england in 1723 um, and they all pretty much worked on the same principle of having that acid base solution as a propellant for whatever material was in there until probably the late 60s, early 70s. And you can learn a lot from a film that's on YouTube called Not Too Hot to Handle, and it covers the use of these old uh, fire extinguishers. Well, unlike alarm boxes and fire extinguishers at the time, automatic sprinkler systems that we use today were pretty much what they had back then. They called them glass disc sprinklers or glass bulb sprinklers. 
Basically, there's a colored bulb or vial holding against a pipe cap, which is basically a plug, and it prevents water from flowing. When the temperature in a room hits what they call the activation temperature of that bulb or vial or fusible link, it breaks and the pipe cap drops and the water flows out of the sprinkler head. From there, it hits the deflector, which is the part closest to the ground, the part you probably see if you're standing and looking up, um, and that deflector will spray the water all around simultaneously. The way they work though is that when you, when one is broken or released, they don't all do it, just the one that was activated. So keep that in mind when you see these around, um, one goes off, they're not all going to go off. And that's, that's kind of a good thing too is because unlike fire departments which release a ton of water to put out a fire, this kind of helps mitigate some of the water damage from a fire. Not by much, but by some. And it can kind of keep things, water damage at least localized. As well as having these additional means of fighting fire, the Von Duprin brand focused on being able to leave the building safely. Marketing materials were focused on ensuring a clear path of egress Having openings that were not blocked by stored equipment or other items, doors that were locked on the inside, and anything on the sidewalk that could impede the exit from the building were central to the company representatives. Instead of being simple salespeople, they had been trained as emergency exit experts. In the 1940s, Von Duprin, along with the help of Viking Films, produced a nine-minute production reel showcasing the dangers of fire in commercial or any other building that contained 50 people or more at a time. It was never intended to be an advertisement, but rather a public service announcement to the world. By the early 1950s, schools, fire marshals, and manufacturing safety directors had shown the film in more than 500 cities across the United States. This film is still available online today and we will link to it on our website and in the show notes. The idea of a door always being locked from the outside, yet easily opened from the inside during an emergency, was very desirable. By the early 1950s, most experts recognized the Von Duprin exit device as the standard for panic hardware on doors for buildings that would contain large groups of people. It was the most practical and dependable mechanism on the market. The General Assembly and Secretariat buildings of the United Nations were originally equipped with Von Duprin hardware, along with the Statler Center and Hotel, and prior to 1925, safe exit devices were shipped to Japan, Australia, and several customers in South America. It's somewhere, I, I don't know if I have them easily accessible, but I have pictures of some of the hardware from the Masonic Auditorium that was built in the late 20s, and there's some old Von Duprin panic bars on some of the doors. I don't know if they're still there, but I remember taking pictures of them. Stuff's been around for quite a while, and you know now it's sort of ubiquitous, but back then it probably was foreign to a lot of people. That film, and I watched it, and it was it, it would certainly hold up just as well today, I think more education needs to be done. Yeah, I mean, Von Duprin is still the standard. That's what we compare all of the 
I hate to say knockoff because they're they they are variations, but that's what we compare all non-von Duprin devices to. Every exit device that we encounter as locksmiths or door hardware technicians, we compare them to the von Duprin series, uh, whether it's the 99 or the 88 uh, or even the 22. We compare to all of them, and that is the standard today. That is the benchmark of any exit device manufacturer. Unrelated, but the people at Vonnegut at this time have to feel like a a million bucks, and not just because they're probably making that much a year, but to know you're manufacturing, packaging, shipping, and selling a device that is saving lives around the world, and it doesn't matter which spoke you are in the hub because the wheel turns together. So everybody that's involved, I mean, that's just a great way to put in 40 hours a week of work. Yeah, I mean, even today, when you install one of these, you got to feel good about it. I mean, I don't know how many fresh installs you guys have done of exit devices where you go from a lever or a knob that's on a door or, or just a slab door that's being installed. It's a little bit of a pain to start with, but... Once you do several of them by yourself and you learn the tricks, how to hold the device to the door with two hands, and then you learn how to install the device with your other two hands, and then you use your fifth locksmith hand uh, to grab the tools off your cart that you have uh, to do it all, then you feel really good because now instead of having some sort of clumsy lever or, or worse yet, an old knob or nothing on the door at all, you have this fresh installation of an exit device and you know that all people have to do to get out in an emergency is just push on the door you know push on that device and they're out making those devices yeah i agree with you that would that would make you feel wonderful you are making actual real life-saving equipment The Vonnegut Hardware Company continued to improve on its safe exit device over the years. It was the first company to use drop forging to manufacture parts. This process uses impressioning dies and a heavy hammer to form and compress metal into complex shapes. They also developed the Type 88 device, which was field reversible, allowing locksmiths and installers to configure the device on site for the specific handing of the door, meaning if the door swung left or right, they didn't have to order hardware specific to that door. This made installation much easier and quicker. Concealed vertical rod devices are so common today, yet most people don't know what they are because they are out of sight. Vertical rod exit devices secure the door at the top and bottom and don't necessarily rely on having a frame or center mullion to keep the door locked on the outside. Instead, a simple mechanical latch at the top of the door and a gravity-fed rod on the bottom keep the door locked at two points until the exit device bar is pushed from the inside. When this happens, the bottom rod and top latch are released and kept open until the door swings shut. Concealed vertical rod devices operate exactly the same way, yet the mechanisms are hidden within the door itself. If you're not familiar with how these look, 
we will post pictures on our website. The Von Duprin brand also created the first line of exit devices to be installed on narrow style doors, known as the NC type. A range of other innovations were also created and marketed, from stainless steel, the Type 66, to the first push pad, the Type 33, and the first electrified and delayed exit devices, the Type E and Chegsit. To this day, Von Duprin remains the leader in exit device hardware. Which is crazy too that they're not they're not one trick ponies. I mean, they kept, they invented the exit device and then they kept inventing things for the exit device that are still in use today and things we kind of take for granted. So they didn't just stop with the exit device. They kept finding ways to refine it, finding new, like with the concealed rods or narrow style, they found ways to meet applications that they didn't necessarily have control over, especially the type of doors being used. So, I mean, that's pretty cool that they didn't just stop and rest on their laurels. They kept saying, hey, how can we make it better? What more can we offer? We're gonna be the best at exit devices. And you know, here they are, 2023 still are. So to have all of these innovations come out of one company was really, really amazing. They really had a heads up to the installers, the people putting this hardware on the door and inventing the field reversible exit device you know nowadays any pretty much any rim style exit device you simply turn it over uh, whether the door swings to the left or to the right and you just mount the device uh, concealed vertical rods and surface mount vertical rods are a little bit different sometimes but generally they can all be reversed the same uh, in the field but before von duprin innovated this you had to order hardware specific to the handing of the door now you don't have to also coming out with devices made of stainless steel you know originally Prinzler said uh, that the device should be shiny uh, made out of brass well stainless steel obviously is going to keep its color it's visible in low light and the material itself holds up very well and then to eventually go on and create electrified hardware, which dealing with access control like I do is really, really amazing. Yeah, I'm pretty familiar with the Von Dubrin stuff. Like my college, almost all of our panic bars at the student union were Von Dubrin 99, except for some of the older stuff. Uh, but very familiar with making sure everything was working and now understanding how they work. Yeah, so they do not allow surface-mounted or concealed vertical rod devices. So everything there is locked is is locked primarily by either two doors locking against each other or a mullion. So they've had issues, I guess, with vertical rod stuff not lasting. And I've seen that in places where they have a rod at the top and bottom, and then the bottom one is busted off for who knows how long. If you're a new locksmith and you've not dropped a vertical rod down inside the door and had to fish it out yet, guess what? Your day is coming. Yeah, that's always fun, having to help on those big storefront doors, plus people are trying to get in and bust right through you. And it's always very exciting. Yeah, it's not exciting for me at all. The core belief of the Von Duprin company was to always secure the door 
yet always provide a safe means of exit that required no special knowledge. Anyone in any kind of emergency situation should be able to literally fall into a door and it opens into safety. Carl had pleaded with fire marshals over the years to require outward swinging doors, and his passion was not to make money, but to save lives. Aggressive humanitarianism was his goal. With the Von Duprin products made in Indianapolis, the company, its employees, and local citizens took pride in the product. In a video made in the early 90s, the Indianapolis Fire Department ran over exit devices from several different manufacturers. The 1986 Pierce Arrow Pumper, which weighed over 30,600 pounds, crushed all of the devices with the sole exception of the Von Duprin 99 device. And now that one was definitely an advertising video, and I always get a kick out of it because I know how it's going to end, but it's still pretty cool, and it's certainly goes above and beyond the way that a door would normally be tested, although from my experience in the college, if the hardware could hold up in the student union to you know, football players running in and out of them every day, it's going to last pretty much anywhere. It's like that master like ad that they had a while ago where they would shoot them with a gun. I mean, this is kind of their version of it. It's It sticks with you. I mean, I know they haven't shown it for 20, 30 years at this point, but those of us that have seen it remember it. Yeah, it this video, I would actually like to recreate it, maybe not with a fire truck, but just with my work truck and uh, see what some of this hardware we're seeing for storefront door exit devices nowadays, uh, seeing how that would hold up. I don't think it would hold up too well. In 1965, Vonnegut Hardware Company was sold to the Schlage Lock Company based in San Francisco. Throughout time, Schlage has been a part of several parent companies and today is under the Allegiant family of products. As previously mentioned, Clemens Vonnegut Sr. passed away at the age of 82. His sons were charged with running the Vonnegut Hardware Company after his death. Franklin Vonnegut, born on October 20th, 1856 in Indianapolis, took over the business during the initial creation of the Von Duprin safe exit device. After helping to pioneer the life-saving hardware, Frank and his wife, Pauline, had three children, Theodore, Felix, and Arthur. Franklin died on October 17, 1952, and was buried in the Crown Hill Cemetery in Indianapolis. In 1915, Henry H. DuPont left Indianapolis for St. Petersburg, Florida. His success continued in that area, perhaps more than ever before. He designed the Don Cesar's Hotel, the Viard House, and Casa de Muchas Flores, or House of Many Flowers. All of these buildings are now a part of the National Register of Historic Places. In 1941, Henry died from a heart attack in his St. Petersburg home. Prior to his death, however, he designed the Masonic Temple in Pinellas County, Florida. After over 50 years of service, Carl Prinzler retired from the Vonnegut Hardware Company, which had now grown to over 300 employees. 
Throughout his life, Prinzler participated in the Indianapolis Athenaeum, the Hardware Age Club, and the Shriners, who designed and built the Murat Theatre. Also included in his civic memberships were the Scottish Rite and the Penelphia Masonic Lodge. Interestingly, the Iroquois Theatre in Chicago, where Carl nearly went to enjoy the showing of Mr. Bluebeard, but narrowly escaped death, later became a Masonic Lodge. Henry DuPont was also involved in the design of several Masonic buildings, both in Indiana and Florida. On May 30th, 1949, Carl Prinzler died at the age of 78. He is buried in the same cemetery as Franklin Vonnegut. Although the pioneers of the self-releasing exit device have long since passed, their legacy lives on, even today as you left a library, movie theater, doctor's office, or any other place that is designed to hold more than 50 people, you touched a part of their legacy. The door that is locked from the outside, directing you towards the main entrance, yet that you can easily leave the building through, is guarded by hardware, developed and inspired by Clemens, Henry, and Carl over 100 years ago. Executive producer is Tyler J. Thomas. Technical producer is Jeff Moss. Writer and editor is Tim Coleman. For source materials, see our website, 3 Get this episode and others wherever you get your podcasts. This has been a 3Tumblers production. Copyright 2023. All rights reserved.